Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series Game of Thrones, The Reign of David. This series looks at the reign of David in the books of 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles to learn from David's victories and failures to see how we can walk more closely with Jesus. Today's teaching is going to actually be covering 2 Samuel 15 to 20. I will not be reading all five chapters. Uh, I am going to read verses 17 to 30. And as always, you can follow along in your Bible. You can follow along up here on the screen or it's in the front of the booklets. Um that uh, you have there. And I'm going to use this text to kind of set in the story. We're looking at Absalom's rebellion against his father, David. Today, we're going to look at the true king, David's response back. So 2 Samuel chapter 15, verses 17 to 30. Hear now the word of the sovereign God. So the king set out with all the people following him, and they halted at a place some distance away. All his men marched past him along with the Carathites and Pelophites and all the 600 Gittites who had accompanied him from Gath marched before the king. And the king said to Ittai the Gittite, Why should you come along with us? Go back and stay with King Absalom. You are a foreigner, an exile from your homeland. You came only yesterday. And today shall I make you wander about with us when I do not know where I'm going? Go back and take your countrymen and may kindness and faithfulness be with you. But Ittai replied to the king, as surely as the Lord lives and as my Lord the king lives, wherever the, my Lord the king may be, whether it means life or death, there will your servant be. And David said to Ittai, go ahead, march on. So Ittai the Gittite marched on with all his men and the families that were there with him. The whole countryside wept aloud as all the people passed by. The king also crossed the Kidron Valley, and all the people moved on toward the desert. Zadok was there too, and all the Levites who were with him carrying the Ark of the Covenant of God. And they set down the Ark of God, and Abiathar offered sacrifices until all the people had finished leaving the city. Then the king said to Zadok, Take the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back and let me see it in his dwelling place again. But if he says, I am not pleased with you, then I am ready. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok the priest, Aren't you a seer? Go back to the city in peace with your son Hemaz and Jonathan son of Abiathar. You and Abiathar, take your two sons with you. I will wait at the fords in the desert until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar took the ark of God back to Jerusalem and stayed there. But David continued up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. His head was covered, and he was barefoot. And all the people went with him, covered their heads too, and were weeping as they went up. A number of years ago, when our kids were small, uh, one of the movies we watched a number of times with them was called Hoodwinked. And Hoodwinked was a retelling of the story of Little Red Riding Hood. But when you would watch it, they were trying to piece together this crime that had happened, uh, a detective and it was, and each person would tell their story, and the story sounded crazy. They made no sense. 
But as they went along, one, two, three, four, five people or so telling their story, you began to see what had actually happened when the whole puzzle came together. And the detective was able to tell what had happened, not from one story, but from all the stories together. And sometimes in the scripture, when you have a fairly complex story and passage, you kind of have to do the same thing. You have to see it from multiple angles and sides. We've been looking at the rebellion of Absalom. And we saw a couple of weeks ago how Absalom, coming out of the incident with Tamar and his own killing of his brother uh, Amnon, and then his exile, and then coming back he goes into rebellion. And we've been kind of seeing things from Absalom's perspective. But today we're going to take a step back and we're going to look at another perspective, which is David's. His son Absalom has turned out to be a rebel. His son Absalom has tried to basically put David to death and take the kingdom away. So the question, the perspective we want to look at today is, how does David respond? If Absalom responds to his situation in rebellion, how is David going to respond when that rebellion turns against him? And in so doing, we're going to be seeing principles of true leadership, but also principles of just what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ and how this text actually points us towards Jesus. So let's dive in and take a look at the true king. So the first thing we learn, and this is in our actual text today in 2 Samuel 15 verses 25 and 26, is a true leader and a true disciple are submitted to God and his will. And in essence, all the other traits I'm going to bring up are anchored in this trait. This is the central fact. They are surrendered to God and his will. Notice that David is there, and Zadok the priest has brought the Ark of the Covenant out, the very place where the presence of God resides. And Zadok is planning on carrying the Ark away, and he's basically saying, look, Absalom may have rebelled and taken over the throne in Jerusalem, but the Ark of God's going to stay with you. And David tells Zadok, no, 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 take the ark of God back into the city, and if I find favor in God's eyes, he'll restore me to my throne. He'll bring me back. I'll come to the ark. I'll come to the temple or, or the tabernacle, and I will worship there. But if God says, I'm not pleased with you anymore, David. I'm done with you. Your time as king is over. If that's what Yahweh says, then I am ready. Let the Lord do whatever he pleases with me. Now notice how different this is than other characters we've seen. You remember in the Hebrew Bible, First and Second Samuel are one book. And way back at the beginning of the book, we read the story of Eli and his sons. And the sons were ungodly. They were not submitted to God. They wanted to go God's own way. And when they go out to battle against the Philistines, if you remember, they took the same ark. And they took it out to battle with them because they basically thought you can manipulate God. If we've got the ark, we've got kind of the lucky rabbit's foot, and God's going to have to ensure victory. And you remember how well that worked out. Israel is routed. The ark of God is taken away into captivity. And it's a disaster because God is showing his people, you cannot manipulate me that way. Your place as a disciple 
is in submission to me, not trying to dictate to me what happens. And the same thing comes, you remember, when Saul becomes the first king of Israel. At a critical moment, rather than submitting to the word of God, Saul tries to take things into his own hands. He offers a sacrifice which he was not permitted to do, thinking he can manipulate God. And once again, the end result is not victory for Saul. In fact, it's utter defeat, and the kingdom is taken away from him and his family forever. So, This has been the context. And so when we come to this place, David, for the first time as king, is in deep trouble. The kingdom looks like it's being taken away. It's just like it was with Eli and the sons. It's just like it was with Saul. And the question is, how will David respond? And the answer is, David responds in submission. And he says, if Yahweh's going to take the kingdom from me, the Lord gives the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. My place is to submit. And so Zadok, take the ark back. The ark belongs in the capital. The ark belongs in the tabernacle. I can't use this to manipulate God. It will not work. And what David is saying here is, I'm more concerned about right relationship with the Lord than I am about my position of authority and power. I would rather be put to death by Absalom, but be pleasing to Yahweh than myself retain my position and power and displease Yahweh in the process. And so the first principle is a true leader and a true disciple are submitted to God and are more concerned about right relationship with God than to gain or maintain power and position. Absalom wants power at any cost. David says, what I want is Yahweh's favor and to be submitted to Yahweh at any cost. And if it costs me the kingdom, it costs me the kingdom. Right here, we've already sailed pretty far off from what most leadership looks like in our culture. Okay? Submission to God and His will. Now, this spins out in a couple of different ways. Because one danger is sometimes in the church what we act as if If you are submitted to God and His will, it makes you inactive. But that's not biblical. And so the second thing we learn from David is a true leader acts wisely and decisively, but righteously. So notice in verses 27 and 28, he's he's already told Zadok, go back. And then he says, Zadok, aren't you a seer? That's what they called prophets back then. But David sees there's there's a good play on words he can do. Aren't you a seer? Well, go back to Jerusalem and see what's going on. And then tell me what's going on. You'll send a message back to me and let me know what's going on. So David being submitted to God does not mean he's inactive. It doesn't mean that he's doing nothing. David, in fact, had wisely and decisively fled Jerusalem, taking his most trusted leaders and fighters with him because he said, we're not going to get trapped in Jerusalem. If Absalom's going to come after me, I'm going to pick the time, I'm going to pick the place because, in essence, me and Joab, we're much better warriors than Absalom is. We're going to pick the time and place of our battle. So this being submitted to God is not inactivity. David's willing to work, and, in fact, He goes on and does the same thing in verse 31, which is just packs where the the section we read ends. David's told in 2 Samuel 15, 31, 
Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. Now, Ahithophel, we're told in 2 Samuel, is considered the wisest man around. He was David's wisest counselor. They said when Ahithophel speaks and gives you advice, it's like God himself has spoken. So David realizes this is trouble. This guy is on Absalom's side, and he is wise. So David doesn't just say, well, that's the way it is. Notice in verse 31, David prayed, O Lord, turn Ahithophel's counsel into foolishness. I'm submitted to you, and if your answer to my prayer is no, then I'll drink the cup. But I'm asking you, turn this guy's wisdom into foolishness. Thwart what is going on here. Furthermore, if you keep reading in 2 Samuel 15, there's another guy named Hushai the Archite, another foreigner that has rallied to David. And he comes and David says, listen, I, I got enough guys around me. What I need you to do is you go back to Jerusalem. You be another set of eyes. You figure out what's going on and you can work with Zadok and you can get information to me. And in fact, Hushai goes back and in the providence of God is the guy who in Ahithophel gives very wise advice. Hushai says, no, nah, that's not so good and gives different advice that ends up being the undoing of Absalom. So note that David, in all of this, is acting wisely and decisively. But notice what David is not doing. He's not acting unrighteously in any way, shape, or form. David's submission to God, his character as one who is submitted to God, is why David had never rebelled against Saul. When Saul had sinned against David, when the Spirit of the Lord had left Saul, even after David was anointed and David had, had delivered them from Goliath and David had led the armies and all those times, David never rebelled against Saul. Because David says, I'm a leader, I'm going to act decisively, I'm going to act wisely, but I will not act unrighteously. I will not do that which God says is sin. David refused to do evil so that good might result but rather, even in his actions, he's always trusting God to sovereignly bring him to the throne in his own time and his own way. And the same thing here. I'm going to act wisely and decisively, but God will either restore me to the throne or he won't. And whichever way he does, blessed be the name of the Lord. So a true leader and a disciple should act decisively, should act wisely, but we always restrict our actions so that they are righteous. We refuse to do evil to gain or maintain power. We do not sacrifice truth. We do not sacrifice righteousness in the quest for power. Absalom did, but a disciple does not do that. And the sign that I'm willing to do that, that I'm willing to do evil because I have good ends in mind, the sign that I'm willing to cut corners in my obedience to God's will in order to gain or maintain power is actually a sign that I'm not trusting Yahweh. I'm not trusting. I'm not being submitted. Rather, the primary thing for me is not right relationship to Him and obeying Him. The primary thing for me is getting the power, and then we'll resolve the other stuff later. David refuses to do that. Third thing, David shows us that a true leader, a true disciple, does not respond in kind to the sinful actions of others. Just because someone else sins, he doesn't do a sin back. Uh, now this, I'm not going to be able to read the text because it's too long, but in 2 Samuel 16, we see this. As David leaves Jerusalem, 
2 Samuel 16, verses 5 to 12, a man named Shimei comes out. And Shimei is a Benjamite. He's not happy with David. He likes Saul. And so as David's going along weeping, Shimei is hurling curses down at David. And he's, he's screaming at David. He's saying, you dog, you're getting what you deserve. And he's actually lying about David. He says, you are a man of blood. You did this kind of stuff to Saul, and now it's come back on your own head. You deserve everything that's happening to you as King David walks by. Well, one of David's companions, Abishai, Joab's brother, he's one of the leaders, says, this guy's a dead dog. Who's he to talk that way to the king? I'm going to go up there and chop his head off. And David says, stop that. What, what is that guy? We don't behave in that manner. The Lord's told him to say these things, and maybe God's going to see the insults being hurled at me and the way I'm responding, and he'll restore me to my place. But don't touch that man. David is unwilling. He refused to respond with sin back to Shimei's sinful actions. Shimei spoke wrong words. He spoke them in the wrong spirit. He was not showing any deference to Yahweh's anointed David. All of that was wrong. David knew it was all wrong, but he's not going to respond back in kind. He's trusting God to deliver him. But here's where the real challenge comes. It's hard when you're David and you're down and this guy Shimei is kicking you. David passes that test. But you know where people usually fail is not when the chips are down, but when they come back to power. Sad to say, the church, read the history of the church. People who suffered persecution, when they come into power, they're going to get their pound of flesh back. So when David's restored to power, what's going to happen? Well, in 2 Samuel 19, he goes back into Jerusalem, and Shimei realizes, I'm in trouble. <laughs> I cursed this guy. I said all this horrible stuff, and he won. I thought Absalom was going to be the king, so now what am I going to do? So he goes out, and he throws himself down, and he says, David, I was a fool. And Abishai is right there again and says, this dog cursed you, and now's the time to get your revenge. And David once again says, what do I have to do with you? I, I am not of that spirit. I am not that way. I will not take revenge against Shimei. And he takes an oath. He says, as surely as the Lord lives, I'm not laying a hand on you. I'm not going to do that. I will not take revenge, even if you had sided with the one who was trying to take the kingdom away. Even if you move on in the story, when Absalom dies, Absalom the rebel, Absalom who had taken, taken the kingdom away from David, Absalom who wanted his own father dead, when David hears that Absalom is dead, does he do a jig and a dance and shout glory? He weeps. He goes into mourning. You learn a lot more about a person's character when they've won and how they respond in their time of blessing. And do they respond with godliness? And are they willing to forgive? Are they willing to not take revenge to those who had treated them ill? A true leader, a true disciple, does not respond in kind to the sinful actions of others, but acts righteously, trusting God to do what is best. Paul put it in Romans 12. Don't take revenge, my friends. Don't do that. Leave it in God's hands. Let God decide what is the best way. That's exactly what David does. And then the final trait that David shows us is a true leader and a disciple would be more concerned 
for others than for himself or herself. Notice in 2 Samuel 15, verses 19 and 20, we have the story of Ittai the Gittite, which we read. He's a foreigner, and he comes, and he's going to go along with David. He says, hey, i got all my soldiers, and we're going to come. And David says, why should you come along with us? Go back and stay with King Absalom. Friends, there's a little bit of humility right there. Not go back and stay with that traitor rebel Absalom. Nope, he's a king now. He's sitting on the throne. You go back with him. Now, why does David say this? David says, look, I don't know how things are going to be with me. I remember I spent years wandering around the wilderness, somebody chasing me and trying to kill me. You don't need to do that. You're a foreigner. You go back, you stay there. I'm more concerned about you than my situation. Friends, you gotta you gotta figure David needs all the help he can get. David needs everybody. But David's looking and saying, while I could use your support, I'm more concerned about you and what's going to be beneficial and caring of you than I am about my own need. Now, in this case, Ittai persists and says, as surely as Yahweh lives, I'm not going back. My place is with you. And even if I die, I die. And in words that would be reminiscent of David's ancestor, Ruth says, wherever you go, I'll go. Wherever you live, I'll live. And I would rather be with you than anywhere else. And so David does say, okay, I will do that. But notice David's heart. It's also why he had left Jerusalem. He said, if Absalom comes here, and tries to besiege us and fight against us, a lot of people in Jerusalem are going to die because my son is trying to take my throne. I'm not going to allow other people to suffer. That's the heart of a leader. And think of how often Jesus said this. He stressed this over and over again in his teachings and in his actions. Just one place in Luke chapter 22, verses 25 and 26, Jesus says to the disciples, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them. And those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. That basically means, aren't you all lucky to have me up here bossing you around? That's their attitude. And Jesus says, but you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest. And the one who rules like the one who serves. Jesus enacts this not only in his teaching, but you remember on the very night he's betrayed, he gets down and he washes the feet. Remember, this is something only the lowest of slaves, usually like POWs, would be forced into. And Jesus gets down. That's why the disciples, Peter's horrified. Lord, you get into it. But Jesus is showing them this is what leadership looks like. And this is what being my follower looks like. You're not about lording it over. You're about servanthood. Paul in the great hymn in Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus, though he is equal with God the Father, uh, humbled himself, took the very nature of a servant, of a slave. And when he did that, he continued to go lower still and humble himself and humble himself right down to the cross. Because as the supreme leader, he was the supreme servant. If someone does not understand that the leader is the servant, do yourself a favor and flee from them. Have nothing to do with them. See, this is the opposite of what Absalom did. Absalom's got lust for power. He's going to grab, and whoever else suffers along the way, that would be their problem. And then they should count themselves lucky to have such a decisive leader. 
David following after Jesus, the God-man who came and served us even to the point of death, David says, I would rather die. I might suffer. I'm not going to have others suffer for me. A true leader and a true disciple puts the needs of others above their own needs. Now notice all of these ways that we're talking about. David is being a true leader. He is submitted to God and his will, and then that actually flows out into acting wisely and decisively, but righteously, within limits. He does not respond. When someone sins against him and he has power, he doesn't respond back in sin, but rather he restrains himself in his behavior back, and he is concerned more for others than for himself. And think how that is the exact opposite of Absalom the rebel. Absalom could not be more different. Absalom's a rebel preferring his own will to the plan of God. God had already said, even after Bathsheba, that David was on the throne. He was the anointed. Absalom had heard how David never wanted to touch Saul or remove authority from Saul, yet Absalom says, my timing is better than God's timing. My will is better than God's will. I will do what I want. Sounding very much like Satan rather than the Lord Jesus. Secondly, Absalom acts decisively and actually gets wise counselors around him. But he is not righteous in his actions. He is not restrained in any way because he's ruled by his lust for power and he will not accept limits to his actions. What I want, that I will do. That's what drives Absalom. Absalom allows the sins of others to simmer. Absalom was right. What Amnon had done to Tamar was wicked and should have been judged. And David not judging it was a sin against Tamar and also against Absalom. And then when David is so indecisive the whole time, Absalom has killed Amnon and he doesn't deal with that. And then he's off in exile. And then David, you remember the whole thing where he halfway restores him and all that. All of that was sins against Absalom. But rather than taking those things to God, rather than having allowing God's spirit to work in his heart, Absalom stews over them. And the more he does, the more rebellion grows in his heart. And the more Absalom is going to respond in kind. David, you weren't a good leader. You've caused this rebellion, and now I'm going to deal with you. So that's the exact opposite of what a leader does. We don't respond that way. And then finally, Absalom's only concerned about himself. Remember, Ahithophel had given a plan where only David has to die. Nobody else has to die. Absalom follows a plan where the whole army's got to get wiped out because Absalom doesn't care. He only cares about himself. So there's this huge difference. Now, the last thing I want to show is, of course, the real reality here Who's the real true king? I call this teaching the true king. Who's the real true king? It's Jesus. Because David's had a lot of times where he's not being a good king himself. But David here is being a pointer to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to show this in the text. I don't know if it caught your ears when we read it. But notice what happens to David as he's forced outside the city of Jerusalem. We read in verses 30 and 31, David continues up the Mount of Olives. Anybody remember anybody else who went up to the Mount of Olives when they were betrayed? Weeping as he went. His head was covered and he was barefoot. And all the people with him covered their heads. 
2 and were weeping as they went up. And now David had been told, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. So David prayed, O Lord, turn his counsel into foolishness. Notice the parallels. David and David's son, the Lord Jesus, are both betrayed by those who are close to them. Both saw the attempt to kill them and to remove them from God's throne, God's will, God's place for them. Both of them, in that moment of betrayal, end up on the Mount of Olives. Both of them end up on the Mount praying to God to deliver them and to bring them through. And for both of them, everything appeared to be lost until God miraculously intervenes to save and deliver them and their followers. Both of them are rejected by people in their own house. It's David's own son, Absalom, that has rebelled against him. We're told in John chapter 1, Jesus came to those who were his own, and his own did not receive him. But amazingly enough, almost every person we're told following David in this chapter is a foreigner, is a Gentile, is one who is outside the covenant people of God. And who gets drawn into the Lord Jesus? It is people from every tribe and language and nation and tongue, and they are following after him. And then amazingly enough, both of them extend mercy to the very people who have been traitors to them. David forgives Shimei. Jesus on the cross cries out, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. And sadly, in both cases, the traitor, Aethopel and Judas, when they realize their plot has failed, go off, put their affairs in order, and hang themselves. Identical. All the way down. Because here's the point. David's greatest legacy is not that he was restored to the throne, but that he's the ancestor of the Lord Jesus Christ. David's legacy is that Jesus is going to come. And so what we see in this story is Absalom is willing to do anything to get the throne and build a legacy for himself. Remember, he's building monuments, he's doing all this because Absalom wants a legacy. But in his rebellion to secure a legacy, he loses his legacy. David submits to God, accepts God's plan, and his legacy is the Lord Jesus Christ. Because that's what happens when we submit to God. A true leader, a true disciple, we find our legacy not in our power, not in our position, not in what others say about us, but rather what God says about us. Rather, in being a pointer to Jesus, the true king. You want to be a leader? You want to be a disciple? Our job is really simple. Point to Jesus. That's our job. No matter what situation we're in, no matter where we're at, no matter what others are doing, it's pointing back to Jesus. That's what we're called to do, and that's absolutely what David does. So how do we apply this? And then we're going to respond today in a little bit of an unusual way by having a water baptism. What do we do? The question for us that comes out of this text is do I submit to God in my daily attitudes and actions? At its core, this story of David and Absalom that runs for chapters, actually from 13 all the way through 20, at its core, it's a story of submission to God versus rebellion against God. 
That's what's being presented to us in the text. Absalom acts out of rebellious motives and desires. Absalom's actions are controlled by the sin of others, by his own pride, by his lust for power, and by his desire for legacy. This that you see on the screen, this is what motivates Absalom. That's what drives him. On the other hand, David acts out of a heart submitted to God. And the primary thing there is a heart submitted, but what that means is he acts decisively, but not unrighteously. He will limit uh, what he's doing. He does not let the sin of others cause him to sin, because a, a true leader or true disciple does not respond in kind to the sinful actions of others. And finally, David and a true leader is concerned more for others than he is for himself. So consider that list right there, juxtaposed against Absalom, who we've looked at the time before. And let's ask ourselves this question of submission, and here's some questions that will help me answer it. Does God's word govern my actions so that I will not act unrighteously to attain my desired ends? It's easy to say I'm submitted to the word of God until the word tells me, do not behave in this way, and it appears to get what I want, I have to behave in that way. And then at that moment, I find out whether some of the songs we're singing this morning about me wanting to be submitted are really true in my heart or whether the Holy Spirit needs to be circumcising my heart. And does God's word govern my actions so that I will not act unrighteously to attain my desired ends? When someone else sins against me, and remember this is all whether I'm really submitted to God, when God in his sovereignty allows someone to have their sinful actions impact me, how do I respond? Because if my response is to strike back, to that degree, I can know that my heart's not being submitted to God. I'm not responding as David and more importantly, as the Lord Jesus. Can I in that moment say, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. Like David, like Jesus, like Stephen. Or you just wait till I get my chance. And you may have the upper hand now, but a day's coming, and when I get the upper hand, you're going to pay for what you did. Now, you have to understand, I, I get it, okay? I, I'm the guy that literally on the way to a church meeting threatened to rip somebody's arm off and beat them with the bloody end, okay? I, that, that can be my go-to response. Oh, you want to do that? I'll deal with you. But when that happens, when that rises up, we can try to justify it. I can try to find verses for it. But what I can know ultimately is I'm not really submitting to God and his will. I want my way. Another question to ask, you know, uh, other than taking revenge on others uh, for their sin against me, do, I, do my actions show I'm more concerned about the good of others or that I simply want what I desire? See, this is one of the challenges right now. If people speak evil about us, is my deepest concern for the salvation of their soul or me winning the argument? Is it concern to see them draw close to God or me getting my way? Because to the extent 
that it's me getting my way, me doing those things, then what that's another sign is there's something in my heart that's not embracing of what God says and what God does. And it's really hard for us in doing that. Is my deepest concern, last way of looking at this question, is my deepest concern that I walk rightly before God or is my primary concern to get what I think will bring me satisfaction and joy? Because this is where it gets really difficult. I'm pretty sure if I could just get this thing, this position, this response, this object, that is going to be joy and satisfaction for my soul. See, and that temptation has worked really, really well since, I don't know, the garden, when you're the image of God, God has blessed you with everything, and we look and say, but if I could just have that, that's going to be satisfaction. That's going to be joy. That's going to be the knowledge and the thing that I desire. And the reality is that thing never is. Satisfaction and joy is being submitted to Jesus Christ, not something else. And so to whatever extent that I'm willing to act and whatever it takes to get that thing, that's another sign deep in my heart something's not quite submitted and I've bought into the lie that this other thing is going to be my joy. And I want to remind us in doing this, I want to speak the gospel to us. All of this is a pointer to Jesus because David's doing well again, but we've seen David has not done well for a lot of chapters over and over again because David's like we are. We fail, but he is a pointer to Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the one who perfectly submitted in your place and in mine. So as the Holy Spirit reveals areas where I'm not submitted, that's not a cause for despondency and despair and turning away. It's another chance for us to go back to Jesus. It's another chance for us to look to Him. And the key to submission is fixing our eyes on Him. Do you remember in Hebrews 11, I'm not going to put the text up, but Hebrews 11 goes through the great hall of fame of faith, as we call it. All these people who lived by faith and died by faith. And then it goes into chapter 12, and remember there were no chapters back then, and we're told, therefore, since we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, let's run with perseverance, the race is marked out for us. And how do we do that? Set your eyes on Jesus, who for the joy that was before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. If you consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, you won't grow weary and you won't lose heart. The key is always looking back to him. What you need is not me or some other Christian. What you need is not even the example. What you need is the Lord Jesus Christ. That is it. It's ultimately the gospel. The gospel to bring us to God. And then even in my sanctification, when I find out, boy, I'm seeing a lot more Absalom in me this week than I'm seeing of the way David was, it's a pointer back to Jesus. Lord, I need to set my eyes on you. I need you to do a work in my heart by the Holy Spirit. And to thank God, first off, that he's the payment for my rebellion and then secondly, that he's the solution to my rebellion, to extract it out of my soul. To be in short, as Scott was reminding us last week, like Peter, not like Judas. When you wake up and you find that you've denied and you've betrayed 
the good news is our king is forgiving, not vengeful. And it's to be a driver to take us back to Christ, to take us back to the gospel. Because thanks be to God, when you come to him and say, I fell short, our God hears our cry. In David's moment of need, he heard and he delivered David. Because in Jesus' hour, when Christ prayed, prayed out, the Father said, no, you're going to bear the cup. He bore the cup so that we would be forgiven. So encourage us. Let's look to him. We're going to close with a word of prayer, and then we're going to have a water baptism where two young men are going to come forward. And water baptism is this act of obedient faith. God's pledge to us to make us his people and to keep and sustain us. And so we're going to do that in response. So let's do a word of prayer, and then we'll have uh, the young guys are going to come forward and for their water baptism. Father, we are grateful for who Jesus is and what he's done. Lord, I'm grateful for my patriarch in the faith, David, that in his own struggles and failures and in his victories, when he's able to walk in obedience, Lord, we can see a pattern for ourselves. Lord, we are grateful for that, but we are especially grateful for the true King, Jesus, who never wavered, who never turned away, who drank every cup you placed in his hands. And Lord, we are grateful that he did that for us, and he did it for our salvation. Father, we pray that for each of us this week, as we go through our week, Lord, I pray we would act out of a spirit of submission, not a spirit of rebellion. That we would embrace your will rather than our own. That, Jesus, we would follow your path wherever that path would go. That our prayer would be, wherever you go, I will go. Whatever you do, I will do. Lord, would you mold that into our hearts. And, Father, I pray that as we do that, I pray that you would empower us by your Holy Spirit to put off sin and put on righteousness, to put off the old man and to clothe ourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we are grateful for Jesus and the gospel, and we are grateful that the same Spirit of God who at the dawn of creation was hovering over the waters and bringing order out of chaos, life out of nothingness, form out of that which was formless, is doing the same thing in our hearts and lives to make us to be more like Jesus. Would you continue that work? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, what we're going to do is two young guys, Elliot and Mitchell, are going to be coming forward to be water baptized. And I want to remind us of a couple of things as we're doing it. And I'm, we're going to need the microphone here. Um, explain. I'm going to explain just briefly kind of what we do. And if, if Ronnie, if I can get a couple of guys to come up and uh, get the baptismal ready. Um, we're, we're going to do something that's a, a little distinct here. And we want people to understand what we're doing, which is their dad, Tom Parlett Jr., is actually going to be doing the water baptism. Uh, that's not because it's separate from the church. 
I've met with Elliot Mitchell. We've given them materials. We've worked with them and talked with them. But we want to remind that God is covenantal, not only in the church, but even among families, God is covenantal. And so I want to remind us, one of the things that some of our forebears in the faith said is whenever you're watching a baptism, you should improve upon your own baptism. Remember the vows that were spoken over you at your own baptism. And I want to remind in here for families, we have a responsibility to raise the next generation in the ways of the kingdom of God. And that's the reason that very often, most often, it's the dads doing the water baptism because they are responsible to raise their children in the ways of the kingdom. And so these two young guys spoke and said they wanted to be water baptized, and it is an exciting day. So what we're going to do is they're going to come forward, and we're going to have a couple of people come around and pray for them. And so if you guys want to come right over here, we're going to have, we're going to have them pray for them. So any of the family members that are coming forward to pray for them, uh, and then their dad's going to ask them a couple of questions and then uh, baptize them by the command of the Holy Trinity in the name of our Lord Jesus. So let's go ahead and we're going to pray for them. We encourage you to pray along uh, with us. Thank you that there are two <coughs> young men who desire are here. I pray a blessing over them. Absolutely. That they would be strong and humble in their faith. that uh, you would help them to glorify you when they remember this day. They lay set aside their old ways. And they with you are moving as a new creature. They will be witness of your changing power and grace. As an example to it's not by our strength, but your strength that you've delivered them. Yeah. Lord, we thank you so much for Elliot and Mitchell and his family, for our family, Lord. I just ask as they go throughout their days, Lord, that they would always serve you and they would serve others. And I think they'll remember this day, Lord, and they will bring it back to their mind and heart times and that they will just go before you. Uh, Elliot and Mitchell, I want to give you the best advice that I, I could give any man, and particularly my grandsons here, would be to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your strength, and with all your might, and your neighbor as yourself. 
Just plant that in your heart this day. Live by it. Stand on it as you're standing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I'm just so grateful that you opened the ready's hearts to you, and I just pray that they'll always trust in you and that you'll be with them as they grow and that they'll be good leaders and good examples of faith. Father, I just thank you for this day. Um, Father, and I know that you have uh, called them uh, by name, and uh, I ask that they would dwell on your word, that it would uh, wake them up in the morning and it would put them to bed at night, and that you would write it on their hearts, that they might walk before you with joy and gladness. Father, we thank you for the old, old story. That has passed from generation to generation. All of us. Our grandfathers, our grandmothers, sharing the gospel way back, at least four generations or more, about the love of Jesus Christ. And now we're coming to another place of another milestone and the next generation is coming forth seeing the foundations that are laid in an individual's lives, not just to do things, but to be more equipped, to better able to be witnesses for the gospel. So we pray that Elliot, mm-hmm. Mitchell, as they have accepted the, the knowledge that they need to bury the old nature in accordance with your word, bury that that acts of flesh, and each time it would try to rise, they would put it back in its place by the word of God, mm-hmm. not by a word of man, but by the word and precepts of God, mm-hmm. that their generation would be strong, mm-hmm. that they would pass on the truths mm-hmm. to the next generation, yes, Lord. and to the generations beyond themselves, yes, we Lord. pray for yes, the Lord. blessings of Christ to be upon yes, them, Lord. that way for... <laughs> grandfathers and mothers to pass the word of God mm. down to them, the generations that we can see that you have passed down from your father to your church, to your disciples, to the word of God, written form, verbal form, and given us the Holy Spirit. So we pray for the empowerment of the Holy Spirit upon mm-hmm. Elliot and Mitchell, yes, that they Lord. will receive the fullness of God upon their life, Yes, Lord. that they will be young men strong in the faith, strong in the testimony and gospel, mm-hmm. and that they being obedient, bury the old man yes, this day. And from this day forward, that they would be able to point back mm-hmm. and say, no, it is not the will of Maker, but yes, it is the will of God that yes, the old Lord. nature has been dealt with. Mm-hmm. Be b- taken back in Jesus' name. Father, I thank you that across the generations you are faithful. Father, I thank you that as their great-grandparents and grandparents and parents before them, so now these young men, Lord, stand up and they say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. Father, that they believe he descended into hell, that he was 
buried, that he was raised on the third day, and that he ascended into heaven where he sits at the right hand of God from where he will come again to judge the quick and the dead. And Father, I thank you that they believe in the Holy Spirit, in the Holy Catholic Church, in the communion of saints, in the forgiveness of sins, in the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Father, I thank you that the faith that has formed and shaped your people from long before we were here resides in their hearts. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that now, as they go into the waters of baptism, Lord, this is not just a ritual, it is a sacrament. Lord, descend, Holy Spirit, upon these two young men. Bury the old nature. Clothe them with the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, fill their hearts and their minds with your word. Holy Spirit, fill them. Fill them with the gifts of their God. Father, impart to them your call, a knowledge of your will, and empower them to walk it out. We ask, Lord, that you would do this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lived for us, who died for us, who was buried for us, who was raised for us, and who still intercedes for us as he's seated at your right hand. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. What we're going to do now is Tom is going to take them into the water. And I will, I will hold it for you. And I do want to say for those who are visiting and don't know, these are grandparents here, and it is a blessing to see. It is a God's covenant promise to a thousand generations. To a thousand generations. And um, there is nothing more exciting than see one generation after another after another um, to receive this and walk. When I was... This young man's age, I first walked into this church, and um, his grandparents were shepherding and caring for me. And to see his mom and his dad walking in the faith, and now to them, this is the blessing of God. And if you're here and you're not from a family background like that, then I, as I always do, I want to encourage you, drive a stake in and say this is generation one. And there's 999 more to come should the Lord carry. So let's celebrate this baptism together. Do you believe that you're a Christian? Do you believe Jesus is your only hope of salvation and forgiveness of sins? Do you trust that he is your prophet, priest, and king? Ha, 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 ha.
How much old man is there here, Mitchell? <laughs> you, said you got the questions early. So, <laughs> Mitchell, are you a Christian? Yes. Do you believe Jesus is your only hope of salvation and forgiveness of sin? And do you trust that he's your prophet, priest, and king? Why do you want to be baptized? Because Jesus tells us to. So in obedience to Jesus Christ, we're going to baptize you. By the command of the Trinity, in the name of the Jesus Christ, I baptize you. Amen. <laughs> Hallelujah. 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 Mm. Let's stand together. We're going to conclude with the word of benediction. I encourage you to reach out by faith and receive the blessing of God and then come get some water on you by hugging these young men as they have taken this act of obedience and faith. Now may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Go forth in the blessing of God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.